Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. We are starting a new series today. Um, it's a series that we've been working hard on. And it's, uh, it has the potential to feel pretty heavy, I'm not going to lie. And even my, in my prep this week, I was just like, wow, I hope that um, we don't feel discouraged or despondent throughout this message today. That is not my hope at all. Um, but we're going to be talking about enemies of the soul. And in order to, in any good battle, any good game plan, any good tactic, any good first step, you have to know your enemy. And so we're going to get into it, and I'll share with you a little bit. But first, I just wanted to stop and pause just to kind of like center our hearts and our minds. And I wanted to ask you the question, have you found time just to stop long enough to maybe to, to feel yourself breathe, maybe hear yourself think, to recognize maybe how stressed out your mind actually is? Have you? Maybe you're feeling it right now as I'm, as I'm asking you that question. Have you stopped long enough, have you paused long enough to feel how heavy your chest actually feels as you're going through this life? Maybe, maybe we just need to take a deep breath right now, if I'm honest. I remember when I was in seminary, we did this one practice where it was this mindfulness practice and this contemplative prayer. And I'm not going to do it with you right now, but it was pausing long enough to feel yourself breathe, to release the tongue from the roof of your mouth and just to relax and to actually hear yourself think. And in that moment, I was almost terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, my chest actually feels heavy. My mind is racing. Have you stopped long enough? to contemplate the reality that you might feel more alone and disconnected because of your beliefs in our world today. And then we look around at the world around us and we see that the world cries out progress, progress, and claims that we're actually far better today than we ever have been as a society and as a culture. And if you look around for long enough with eyes to actually see, again, this is not supposed to be a depressing, despondent, discouraging message. I promise you it's not going to be. But the reality is, is that I don't think we are much better than we were many years ago. In C.S. Lewis, he had this quote. He called it chronological snobbery. It's this innate human bias to think that we're smarter than the people who came before us. Therefore, new ideas are naturally better. And so we look around at our nation and our world that cries for progress, and we see that we're actually really not making much progress. We're not. It's as if things are getting worse if we're not blind or numbing ourselves out to the reality around us. It's as if things are getting worse. And it's as if there are real enemies out there, external and internal. I don't know about you, but I'll be going throughout my day, and it, sometimes it feels like I have a lot of external enemies, <laughs> Sometimes when I'm on the road, it feels like I have a lot of external enemies. There's these people that are out to get me. It's almost like they just follow you around. And if we're honest, we have a lot of internal enemies. Sometimes it's our, our very own voice. Sometimes we're our own worst critic. I don't, need, I don't need the enemy to condemn me, right? I already can condemn myself enough. I'm great at that. It's as if there's a war going on, and if we're honest, we can't always articulate it, but we feel it and we know that it's there. And once we look around, 
it's almost as if the enemy's winning. The Barna Group, which is this Christian statistic group, they have a, a, a phrase for our cultural moment that we find ourselves in as human beings. They call it digital Babylon. And if you know anything about Babylon, it was this place that actually existed, this empire. You read about it in the scriptures, especially in Revelation. We're not going to get there today. We'll be here for a couple hours. But Babylon was this place personified as a woman in the scriptures. And if you pledged your allegiance to her as an empire or a nation, she promised you prosperity and security. She promised you hope and salvation. And they called this time period that we're in digital Babylon because it's as if culturally and generally speaking, the world's values are directly opposed to our values as Jesus followers. And really Babylon was an enemy. And they call it digital Babylon because it doesn't matter if you live in the most rural area in this state. If you pull out your phone, guess what? You just entered into digital Babylon. You entered into a world that is trying to get you to pledge your allegiance to it, trying to get you to trust in it, trying to get you to put your hope and security in it. And just like Babylon back then, the Babylon today promises hope and security, but she delivers bondage and slavery. She promises prosperity and salvation, but she only and always delivers death. There's a battle for our soul. And this isn't a new battle by any means. It's actually quite ancient. It's old. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, hey, Nate, the language of war feels a little over the top, right? This whole talk of enemies and battles. Come on now. I get the dramatic effect, but let's be real. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, that's kind of like corny and cringy. That's just Christian jargon. And the reason why I'm using this language, it's not for dramatic effect. It's because it's biblical. That's why I'm using this language. It's because it's serious, and it's because we must not tread lightly. In order for us to truly break free from the bondage that these lies bring, that these enemies inflict on our soul, we have to first know our enemies and their tactics. We have to. And this is what this entire series is about. These next three weeks are going to be so pivotal in our inner life and in our spiritual formation. Before anyone comes to faith in Jesus, we really only have one enemy. Think about it. Before anyone comes to faith in Jesus, you only really have one enemy, and that's God himself. It's a little terrifying, if I can be honest. The scriptures even say this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it states that we were God's enemies, but we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it states that we were alienated or separated, disconnected from God, and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But here's the problem. After we come to faith in Jesus, if we're not careful, we're tempted to think that life is going to be easier. And there's this truth that the battle has been won, right? There is a truth, and we'll get there. The cross proves that to us. But there's still a battle raging today, externally, internally, in our very own soul. And now we have more than just one enemy, 
and these enemies are a whole lot nastier. These three enemies, we define them, Scripture defines them as the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this week and the next two weeks to talk about these three enemies because we have to know how to fight against them. The early desert fathers and mothers wrote extensively about this reality. These three enemies, the devil, the flesh, and the world, they were seen as a counter trinity in direct opposition to God the Father, to God the Son, and to God the Spirit. It's very interesting. And this paradigm has been used for thousands of years. There's been books and books and books written on these enemies. And the church in America laughs at this, but the early church didn't laugh. No, they took these enemies very seriously. And the, the, the first step in any good battle or any war is knowing our enemies and their tactics. In order to make sure we get the most out of this series, what I want to do is I want to give us, if there's any note takers in the room, I would encourage you to, to write down especially what I'm going to say next. Because this is going to be our compass. It's going to be our true north. This is what we're going to hold on to throughout this entire series. And this comes from a gentleman who is a pastor, author, writer. He writes heavily on spiritual formation. His name is John Mark Comer. And he got this idea from the early church fathers and mothers. And this comes from scripture. If our enemies are the devil, the flesh, and the world, how does that play out in our reality? This is how it plays out. So we have the devil who uses deceptive ideas. That's number one. The devil uses deceptive ideas. And they play to our disordered desires. A fancy way of just saying the flesh. So there's these deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires and they're normalized in a sinful society. These are the tactics. This is the compass. This is our true north. We're going to be here for the next three weeks. And so what I want to do, and this is why I've been feeling so much weight, is I want to break down our first enemy. I don't know if any pastor or preacher or communicator has been fired up and excited to spend a whole sermon on talking about the devil, right? No. And so I was excited about it because I'm like, wow, I see the way that so many of us have been in bondage and I want freedom. I want freedom in our hearts. I want freedom in our world. That's why I'm excited. And so the first thing that I want to talk about is I want to talk about our first enemy, and that's the devil. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his mind-bending story called The Screwtape Letters. He says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. The other is to believe and feel this excessive and unhealthy interest in them. What C.S. Lewis said is you can fall in two traps, being like, ah, that's hogwash, the devil demons, angels, I don't have time for that. Or to be so obsessed about these things that you give them way too much credit and power in your lives. Some of you, right, it's like, man, the devil's after me. Why do you say that? I just can't hold the job. Why? My alarm just keeps, I don't know, it's not going off. The devil, he's after me. It's not the devil. That's not the devil. It's called discipline. 
We need to teach you a little bit about that. So what we want to do is we want to first know our enemy. Sun Tzu in the Art of War says that's the first step in any good battle, in any good war. And so this time that we have together, this is what it's going to look like. We're going to break down who he is, we're going to break down his tactics, and then we're going to break down how to fight against him. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is talking to the relig religious leaders, and he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 says this, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who is he? There's a real big obvious for Jesus here in John chapter 8. The devil is real. The devil is real. For a lot of us, culturally speaking, and in our world today, I don't know about you, but people will say things like, eh, I don't really know if I can get behind that whole Christianity thing. God, the devil, heaven, hell, angels, demons. It just feels like this fantastical story. It feels like an epic. I just can't get behind that. And then I start to ask them questions and even ponder this myself. You think humans are so creative and crafty to be that evil all on their own. And I mean, for some of us, we, we live sheltered lives, right? But if you get out, if you go on some mission trips, if you, if you see the rest of the world, I've been to a place like Thailand, you see that evil is real, it exists. And humanity left to itself with our own heart, there are some wicked and evil things that happen in our culture, in our world, in our society. And I think to myself, you think that human beings can just come up with that all on their own? There has to be another power or force at work. And then how do we even come up with the, de the definition of evil and define it if there's no such thing as good or God? How are things that bad if there's no such thing as evil? And then when people say they don't believe in these things, in essence they're saying that doesn't fit my values, that doesn't fit in my ideas, that doesn't fit my perspective. And my personal favorite, that just doesn't align with my feelings, right? <laughs> That's our culture today. I just, I just don't feel like that would be true. Oh, the truth is based off of your feelings now, huh? <laughs> That's a dangerous place, right? We see that Jesus doesn't care about how we feel in regards to this situation. He doesn't. He made it very clear that the devil is real. The Greek word Jesus uses for the devil is diabolos, which means to slander or accuse. It can also be translated as the accuser. And this is just one of many titles that the scripture gives to this creature. There are others like the Satan, the evil one, the tempter, 
the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon who deceives the whole world, and the ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. And so for Jesus, what the devil is, is a real and cunning source of evil and the most influential creature on earth. This is why we have to know who he is. Can you imagine fighting this battle blindly? Three times Jesus called the devil the prince of this world. And that word prince was used in Jesus' day for the highest ranking Roman official in a certain city or region. Think about that for a second. The highest ranking official in a city or region, he called him the prince of this world. This means that Jesus is saying the devil is the most powerful creature in the world. In another story, when Jesus is being tempted, the devil says, all of these earthly kingdoms are mine to give. And you know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't disagree with him. He's real. He's powerful. He's evil. He's dangerous. His tactics. John chapter 8, verse 44, it says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 10, 10, it says, the thief, the devil, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So we see that, we see who he is, he's real, he is dangerous, he's evil. And we see that his tactics are lies. It comes back to that idea of deceptive ideas, that's where he starts. In order for us to fully understand what a lie is, we have to juxtapose that with its opposite, and that is the truth, right? What is truth? There's this very simple definition for what truth is. And this is very clouded in our world today. And it's kind of disorienting. But truth is reality. That's what truth is. Truth is reality. And so that means a lie wouldn't be reality. And so this is what this means. A lie is an idea that goes against reality. A lie is an idea that goes against reality. And oftentimes, the lies aren't blatant. They're not obvious. Did you know the most destructive lies are always laced with a little bit of truth? Those are the most damaging. In Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Eve with an idea, an idea that had a little bit of truth in it, he said to her, he said, you won't certainly die if you eat from this tree. Think about that. The enemy was using his tactics in the beginning of time, sharing a lie mixed with a little bit of truth. You won't certainly die if you eat from the fruit of this tree. And it was true that she wouldn't physically die right then and there. Spiritually, there would be some death. There would be a disconnect between them and God. 
and physically there eventually would be death, but not right then and there. We as human beings have this capacity to take a thought or an idea and use our body to make that idea a reality. And I want to break this down for you. Because Dallas Willard, he said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. We live at the mercy of our ideas. If our ideas are true, they correspond with reality. And then we use our bodies to live that truth out. And our reality thrives. We flourish. We live life as if it, we live it in a way that we were always intended to live it. And if this idea in our head is a lie and we live that out, it doesn't correspond with reality. And so what happens is it actually starts to erode our reality. I hope that I'm not getting so heady and philosophical today because this is so important. And I want to break this down in the most simplest way I possibly can. Think about something that is true, something that makes sense. This is an idea that is true. And when you live that out, you flourish. Number one, men, your wife is always right. Have you ever tried to live that reality out in its opposite? It doesn't work. I heard a, a quote this week. It said, you can either be right or you can be in love, but you can't be both. <laughs> Men, that's for you. Take that. If you remember nothing else this morning. <laughs> or I think about something a little bit deeper, a little bit more complex, a little bit more controversial. Marriage is an idea that is true. How do I know that? Because have you tried the opposite? Everybody's all quiet now. I am so glad that I don't have to date as a single man anymore. <sighs> you talk about confusing. You talk about deception. Oh, my gosh. All the single people are like, I'm not coming back next week. <laughs> I promise I'm not picking on you. Singleness is hard. But for me, when I think about it, it makes sense that I was created when we're talking about relationally for one woman. I don't even want to imagine any more than one. Are you kidding me? One's hard enough. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke, y'all. <laughs> but when we live in a way that's contrary to that truth, if you think about it, my self-confidence is eroded. I'm insecure. Marriage brings this source of security. It brings this connection. Okay, now I'll use another example. Fitness, right? I know a lot of CrossFitters are in here. I got one friend that always says it's as simple as this, Nate. Calories in, calories out. I would argue that it's not that simple, okay? But for illustration's sake, if you eat more calories than you burn, what's going to happen? You're going to gain some weight. That's true. That's an idea that is true. I've never met anybody that believes they can eat more calories than they burn and then they lose weight. That's an idea, but it's not true. If you were to live that idea out as truth, what would happen? It, it, it would erode your reality. Here's another one. Ikea. 
you believe this lie that you can build this piece of furniture without the directions. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Someone back in the green room gave me that illustration. And Austin was like, man, I throw those instructions away every time. And I was like, bro, I read every single word. And I'm like, all right, did I miss a step? I guess that shows what kind of man I am, right? I'm an Ikea guy, right? Own it. So we see that the enemy starts with an idea, but it's a deceptive idea. And then we hold on to this idea as if it's true. And then we live it out and we start to unravel. Our humanity unravels. Our very self erodes. Lies distort our reality and drive us into ruin. So we now that we know his tactics, how do we fight? How do we fight? Our fight with the devil, with this first enemy, is first and foremost a fight in our mind. It's a fight in our mind. The battlefield is in the mind. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it states, once we were alienated from God and enemies, where? In our minds. In our minds. We see that our battleground, the place that we fight, is in our mind. I wanted to ask you this question, and let's just be real. Have you ever had a thought, and that thought just scared you? This thought felt malignant. It felt like it had its own will to it. You're like, Nate, you need to go get checked out, right? <laughs> but for real, have you ever had a thought, and just the simple fact that you were thinking it, it freaked you out. But then this thought, it's as if it almost torments you. You can't stop thinking it. And then you start to get a little bit anxious, and you're like, oh, my gosh, how am I thinking this thought? And I can't stop thinking it. It's almost as if there is a force behind this thought. Like, you're not crafty and evil enough all on your own to come up with these thoughts on your own. And then when we think these thoughts, we can fight them in one of two ways usually. This is how we often fight them. We'll fight these deceptive ideas or these thoughts one of two ways. Either we see people give in to them, and we know how that turns out. We see a whole society give in to them, and we see how that turns out. Or this is what we do, the equal and opposite. We stuff that thought. We hide that thought. We pretend like we didn't think that thought. That's the two ways that we fight. Because we believe the lie, this idea, right? I hope this is making very practical sense. We hold on to this idea, and it's a lie, that if people knew this about me, I would be an outcast. I would be seen as unlovable. I would be worthless. I would be looked at as a failure. And because I believe this lie and I hold on to this idea as truth, what I do is I live it out and I use whatever means necessary to hold on to this lie as if it was a true. And then so what does that look like in your relationships? Practically speaking, we withhold the truth from those around us. We might even lie to those around us. We might hide or suppress 
we might naturally grow distant and disconnected with the people that are closest to us in our life because we're believing this idea that's a lie, that if they knew this about me, the relationship would be severed. And I wanted to tell you guys, in the kingdom of God, a lone wolf is a dead wolf. And if there's something that we can't talk about that happened in our past or that's going on right now, then that thing is still our master. And we're believing this idea that is a lie and it's keeping us in bondage. And what we have is we have our enemies mixed up. Think about it. We think that, oh, if people knew this about me, it'd be over. And we have this idea that God just wants to punish us for our sin. And so we believe the lies of the enemy and we withhold parts of ourself from the world and those around us. And there's only two targets that the enemy attacks. He uses his lies and his deceptive ideas to attack God and his character and to attack our identity. Those are the two places that the enemy will attack. He attacks God and his character and he attacks our identity. Think about it, Genesis 3 again. Did God really say that? Can you really trust him? Is he really as trustworthy as you think that he is? You have this idea that you can trust this God. The enemy says, are you sure about that? Well, you know what? I don't see why it would hurt. Let me just try it. And then after that, the enemy attacks our identity. Can't believe I did that. I'm such a failure. I feel so ashamed. I'm worthless. I'm not worthy of love and belonging and acceptance. I don't deserve to be here. Do you see how these deceptive ideas erode our reality? T.S. Eliot says humankind cannot bear very much reality. And David Foster said the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. The problem for us is that we would rather sit in an invisible prison of lies that bring the illusion of security. I say illusion because it's not real. Then face our fears, walk in reality, and experience the freedom that truth brings. The freedom that we were created for. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, Paul is writing to young pastor and he says, and they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We see that these deceptive ideas, when we believe them and live as if they're true, it brings bondage. It brings slavery. And we see that Jesus came to set us free from the lies. So what do we do now? This all feels so overwhelming, if I'm honest. It's like, well, I already lost this battle. How am I going to fight against that? 
the battle tactics are simple. They're simple. We need to believe the truth about who God is and who he says you are. We need to believe the truth about who God is and who he says you are. If the enemy's job is to accuse, that's his name, to slander, then it's God's job to set you free by telling you the truth. What does this look like? What does this look like? Think about it. What deceptive ideas have you been carrying around as if they're true about God and his character, about you and your identity? What are they? If the Holy Spirit is starting to name those lies in you right now, let the Holy Spirit. Because God really wants to replace those lies with the truth. And where do we see this played out? Where do we see the truth about who God is and who we are more clearly than ever? The cross. The cross. The cross is the intersection of divine judgment and love colliding together to conquer the power of both sin and death once for all and forever. And so when we look to the cross, what do we see? We see a God that has not forsaken his creation. We see a God that would go to whatever depths necessary in order to rescue. We see a God that would actually take on the most heinous, the most evil act of torture. It wasn't even an act of death. It was an act of torture. They didn't put people on crosses to kill them. They put people on crosses to torture them. We see God literally taking on the most evil act that could ever be committed. For who? For you and for me. So what does that say about us and our identity? That you're not unlovable. That you do belong. That you do have a purpose. That your past mistakes and your failures aren't bigger than God's grace and mercy. Do you see how if we're not careful, we walk around with these, there are parts of us that we're holding on to, these, these deceptive ideas and these lies. And think about it. If you believe the lie that you're unlovable, what does that do to your identity and your relationships? It erodes them. Have you ever felt unlovable and unworthy? What does that do to your self-esteem, to your humanity? And then when you go out into the world and relate to the people around you, how do you treat them? That's exactly where the enemy wants us. To believe these lies as if they're true. And what Jesus came to do is he came to show the world the truth that would set us free. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will do what? It will set you free. If it's lies that keep us in bondage, it's truth that sets us free every single time. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's not keep this nebulous and so lofty like we can't obtain it. What is truth? Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said that I am truth personified. I am the one who has come to set the world free. You simply need to believe in me. Not in yourself, not in the world, not in your own effort, because all those things will fail you every single time. What better place to find out who God is and who we are than the cross? Amen? Amen. What does this look like for our community, for Vertical, for our church? It means that as much as we know the truth, it's not enough to just know the truth, right? We have to believe the truth. And what does it look like to believe the truth? It looks like living out that reality. Living out that idea. And then even practically speaking, what does it look like? It looks like holding fast to God and his word. And it also looks like holding fast to a community of believers that will do what? That will tell you the truth. That will tell you the truth. Because Lord knows when I walk out of here, there is a real enemy. And I will be tempted because he's the tempter to believe so many different lies about myself as soon as I walk out of this place. That's why it's so important to have a community of believers that are in this battle with you. Because when you're feeling down and your head's hanging low and you're feeling outcast and you're feeling unlovable, you have people that are surrounding you to remind you of the truth. And then what does this look like for us corporately? It looks a lot like communion. And that's how we're going to end our time together today. Communion. And really what communion is, is, is it's, it's choosing to hold on to this idea that you don't have to save yourself because you never could. You have to hold on to this idea that the only person who could save us is the one that already has saved us, and it's the person of Jesus Christ, and that's depicted on the cross. And I was just even feeling it on my heart this week. I was talking to a friend. I don't ever want to not create space for what God is doing. And so if there's anybody in this room, this is what I want to do. With every head bowed. We're going to go real Southern Baptist on everybody right now. but And with all of our eyes closed, this is what I want to do before we enter into a time of communion. If the Holy Spirit has convicted anyone in this place, and you feel like you've been living a lie, to the point where you've even questioned your salvation, I want to create space for God's Spirit to move right now. And I want to replace that lie with the truth. I want God's spirit to replace that lie with the truth. And so with every head bowed and with all eyes closed, please, 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 I want to pray for you right now. And I want you to actually take a stand and replace those lies with the truth. God, we pray right now and we ask that your spirit would move. And we pray right now specifically for anybody in this place that has been holding on to the lie that they're not enough, that they're unlovable, that they're not worthy of your grace and your mercy. For anybody in this room that has been believing the lie, so much so that they have questioned their own salvation. And they believe the lie that their salvation is up to them and them alone to earn and to maintain. 
And so God, for anybody that's been believing that lie right now with every head bowed and with all eyes closed, I ask if there's anybody in the room right now that's been holding on to that lie that you would lift your head and open your eyes right now. If there's anybody in this room that has been believing that lie, that they're not, that they're not enough and that they, they are questioning their salvation, I pray that those heads would come up and those eyes would be opened right now. Amen. Amen. And Father God, I pray right now in this moment that your people, your church, vertical, that the enemy would not have a foothold in our lives or in our hearts. And that there, if there are any strongholds, God, we have this tendency to fall into the trap of thinking that we can never break free. That no matter what we do, no matter what happens in our life, that we'll always be in bondage. I pray that you would replace those lies with your truth right now. Remind us of the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would loosen chains. I pray that you would set people free. And I pray that we would be people that would continue to do that in this community, in this state, in this world. I thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of your church, God, of your people here. I thank you for the, the, the minds and the hearts that have been awakened to the reality of your truth and of your gospel. And right now, as we enter into a time of communion, God, we remember your sacrifice. We remember your blood that was spilled. And we remember your body that was broken. And we thank you for that, for the freedom that that brings, for the purpose that that brings, for the truth that that brings. And as we take communion as a church, all God's people said together, amen, amen. Go ahead and please take communion as you feel led, church. Should have had some pads going right there. Made it a special moment right there, huh? <laughs> this is what I wanted to tell you as we get ready to leave this place. I don't think I've ever cared more deeply about a series before. I feel like this is one of the most practical series I've ever walked through. And this is what I wanted to ask you to do, church. Take that, that compass, deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are lived out in a sinful society. Take that as our true north and as our compass and use that, not in a way that brings harm, not as a weapon, but in a way that brings freedom in love for yourself and then for those around you that have given you access to their heart and to their life. I'm telling you, when you start to have your mind and your eyes open to all the ways that we're tempted to believe the lies about who God is and about who we are, you see how very quickly it is to fall into that yoke of slavery. And God has not created us for that. And someone said in, in, in rally today, they said that in the end we know that, that the battle's already won. 
and that victory is ours. And then we have that corny Christian statement that everybody says, but it's so powerful and so true that we don't, li- we don't live for victory, we live from it, right? What does that look like in your life? We know that the battle's won, but practically daily we're still in a battle today. And there's still souls that need saving today. And so we are called to be people that embody the truth, that believe the truth, that live the truth, and that tell the truth. And so I pray that we here at Vertical would be people that do that in love and in grace. Oftentimes to ourself first and foremost, right? Why is it that we can be the nastiest with ourselves? And then to others, to others. And so I just wanted to encourage you. I wanted to challenge you. I wanted to admonish you as you leave this place. Feel the weight of this series, not in a way of discouragement or despondency, but in a way of encouragement, in a way of hope, in a way of, wow, I need this for my own life. And the world needs this. Because deception is the tool of the enemy, and we see that the world is deceived. Not us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.